All right, so good morning. It is 7.12. I apologize. I tried to do this at 7, which is going to be my ever-increasing goal. And it's going to happen because I just declared it. All right, so today's topic, was, um, my wife and I and Rodney, we've been watching this show. It's called Heartland, and I'm kind of like a little tiny bit embarrassed to actually, you know, put that out there because it's this show shot in Canada, whole families on a ranch, you know, very beautiful, lots of horses, you know, very clean, which is like something novel for a series today, and we're in like the 10th season of it. But essentially, the thing that drew me to that show after the first couple episodes was that it... Um, everybody does the right thing. Like the family gets all messy on each other and they do, you know, crazy stuff, sometimes bad stuff, sometimes, um, you know, stuff that, um, that they wish that they didn't. And there's all kind of stuff that goes on in it. But essentially, um, they always end up doing the right thing. They love each other. They support each other. They might be messy at first, but then they come around. You know, I'm kind of like that too. Ask my son, you know. My first response to some things that I'm annoyed with or whatever would, might be a little bit messy. But I always come back around um, to a response that's more gracious. And I think, you know, one of the things as parents we have to let ourselves <coughs> off the hook with a little bit here is um, being perfect. I'm going to tell a little short story before I get on the main story. I remember when I, my oldest daughter, Sarah, was like, what, three, two, three in there, that age. And, you know, kids can be exasperating at all ages, right? I mean, you know, she was doing something and it was really annoying and I got really frustrated with her and I just picked her up and bloop, plopped her down on the bed on her behind. Wasn't abusive. But it certainly hit my conscience like a ton of bricks because I realized it was a little more gruff than what I really wanted to release on my daughter. And <clears throat> I asked my daughter in that moment, immediately after that, that um, I said, will you forgive daddy? Because he was a little bit angry and he shouldn't like put you down like that. And this big, huge smile broke over her face because um, she's like, of course, daddy. And then she throws her arms around me and um, gives me the biggest hug. And um, that was like a metaphor for me on how to do life with kids and people. I don't have to get it right and I don't have to do it perfect. So that lets us out of a lot of self-contempt there, right? But what I do need to do is I need to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Reconciliation, most of the time when people have really, really painful stuff in their past, one of the most painful aspects of that stuff is that nobody actually said, will you forgive me? And I don't like the word sorry as much or even apologize because it doesn't elicit a response from the other person. There are situations where you cannot get a response from the other person to acknowledge something in terms of forgiveness or being forgiven. I get that too. But I think it's kind of like a cheap way out sometimes. We say, oh, sorry, my bad. No, not my bad. Will you please forgive me? And then there's something that gets restored. And so in light of that show, my son um, was, it triggers things. This, this show triggers everything in me, um, everything good about family. But it, 
it triggers all the things that went wrong. It triggers all the things that I wish should have been and, you know, places of loss and whatever. And so it's an emotional roller coaster watching a, a show on TV. You know, like, who does that to themselves? I guess I do. <coughs> but anyway, the, the show triggered um, a conversation with our son, and he began to recount um, really one of the most shameful encounters. You know, we've been talking about how this bedrock of shame in our hearts gets formed early because it's where we, we need to try. Yeah, let me say it this way. At a young age, we learn how to prostitute ourselves for what we want. And when we do that, we prostitute ourselves metaphorically, emotionally, and give, you know, we kind of become what everybody wants to become because we ultimately believe that who I am isn't enough. So whatever we become, that's the false self. That's the one that everybody else is bonding with. And so, um, like I said, this show triggers, but he was telling a story and um, about... Um, a primary kind of shaming event, and it was a Christmas time uh, story. And just a little backdrop on my son. Um, I think everybody in the audience that probably knows that he's African American. He was one of my students, and I adopted him. My wife and I adopted him um, right before his junior year. Rodney had a really hard and challenging life, and the it, the the thing that's interesting about that for me is it's it's indicative of so many of the kids that come in my room. And essentially, his family were, were drug lords. He was being groomed as one. Before he was 10 years old, he witnessed his um, drug lord um, uncle being shot and killed while he tried to get cover in the back of the seat of a car so that they wouldn't see him. And so, and then, you know, when you grow up to where there's a lot of lack, lack has its own aspect of shame to it you know poverty is a is a pervasive shame-based kind of place for people to live and I don't know if we always recognize that way so there was all of that too but the uncles also kind of um, abused him in ritual kind of ways all under the guise of preparing him to be um, somebody who could step into the business but the primary goal and what they did to him was to eliminate the possibility of emotion betraying him. In other words, we've got to get, if you cry, I will beat the garbage out of you and you won't do it again. Because there was this necessity to be dominant, but not to have an emotion. So any emotion was punished. Um, and, and there's a lot of stories in there. But on this one particular um, morning, it was Christmas. And... His uncle was kind of running the family. They were living in his home at that time. And every kid gets up and they're excited about Christmas, right? <clears throat> I mean, even when we don't have a lot, um, we still want to do things for our kids and we still do something. And really, it's more about the time we spend, you know, um, with our kids and with family and, and, and our availability, our being present. The biggest thing you can do is show up. And so, but um, Christmas is also a special time. Its emphasis in our culture is gift giving. And he watched all his siblings just kind of get their gifts from under the tree and, you know, watch them begin to open them. And, you know, and there was this moment where he was just caught up in the reverie of watching them, you know, like, wow, thinking, okay, I'm probably just last. And it didn't come.
there was no gift. He was the only one that didn't receive one. And his uncle clarified what the exercise was about when he looked under the Christmas tree. He said, don't look under there. There's nothing there for you. Some sort of weird punishment, some sort of weird lesson. As he was telling the story, and when we got to the punchline, I literally like blurted out, like, what, what, you didn't get anything? And like you were, and, and then when the uncle made the comment, all eyes were on him. And there he was. And so that's the feeling. If you want to put a picture to shame, which we're going to have lots of pictures as we go through this 90 day devotional. Um, that's a big one. You know, when all eyes are on you and your body and your face starts to flush and you want to climb under a rock because every, you just got called out, not, not only called out, but you got called out for what was being done to you to give you nothing while you watch everybody else. And that was like devastating. And even in hearing it, I felt my own shame response kind of emerge. I was like, oh, wow. And then in the context of our conversation, um, what do you do in a conversation where the, where the shame is all present? It's all right here because literally he's just relived it in front of us and we're reliving it with him. You know, that's a real awkward um, transition. And Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he says, but I've come to give you life and life abundant. He also says in John 8, <coughs> before that, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The only remedy for shame is truth. And the more that we're able to label it in places and see it for what it is, we are able to have power over it. So truth does it. But also this, and this is the one that I think Christians have a little bit harder time with, is being able to encounter God in ways where we see him show up in those places that we um, felt abandoned, betrayed, radically shamed, or dissed, you know, all those things. And that's, that's one of those things that happens in the context of prayer. Um, in the devotional for today, um, I actually kind of lead us through a prayer like that where we can begin to access God in the picture where things went wrong. Because that's also one of the most painful places for a lot of people. And it's part of their beef with God and why they don't believe that God is good is because they don't know where he was when this happened. And I guarantee you this, that Jesus wants to show you where he was at because he never left you. He was always there. Just because your heart could not comprehend or apprehend that truth doesn't mean it's not true. So the first step in believing in a good God is to believe that he's always been with you, even in those places that were the most devastating. And so um, I'll talk more about that as we go through the devotional about, you know, what it means and how powerful it is to enter into a prayer time with some meditation and just visualizing a little bit, which I know that's, you know, Christians go crazy. It sounds so new age, but they didn't invent meditating when they really didn't invent visualizing things in their hearts and seeing things happen. So, you know, they're not the first ones on that one. I think the Christians own the territory on that. They just kind of corrupted it. But essentially, um, is to be invaded by truth. 
And I, as I was driving in, running late, you know, halfway frantic, <laughs> just trying to do this at seven. <clears throat> um, it's interesting. The thing that I had in my spirit that I wanted to declare over us is the restoration of innocence. And there are some things that are totally incapable, that we're incapable of doing. And it doesn't make sense that we should be, um, have something like that take place in our life. I'll give you one more little snippet story. There was a leadership advance out of Bethel and they told the lower school kids that they were gonna prophesy over the leaders the next day. And they paired those leaders up. Now I might not get it totally right, but close enough. They paired two of the older um, Supernatural School Ministry students with a child, like a 10, you know, 11, 12 year old kid. And as they were prophesying, if that's a hard word, just think of it as expressing God's heart for someone um, over the leaders. Um, the kid would just like read their mail and, and like they would, these leaders would break as the kid was just like hammering them with what like God's heart kind of confronting them with what God really believed about them, which is so much more gracious than we ever believe about ourselves, And that's what makes the prophetic so powerful. But, um, and so at the end of that, when they were debriefing, they looked to the kid and they're like, man, how long you've been doing this? You know, dude, like you were nailing them and we were sitting there like, we didn't know what to say sometimes. He said, well, the teacher told us at the beginning of the day or right before this, that we were going to be prophesying over the leaders. So I just figured anything that came in my head was God. Jesus said, let the children come to me unless you're like a child. The restoration of innocence is the restoration of that childlike place in us, that place of faith and simplicity that's not tainted by life and disappointment and past, you know, things that have happened. It's not tainted by our history. It's that place in our simplicity where we could be the kid that crawls up in daddy's lap and we know that we, that we belong there and we know that every motivation he ever has towards me is always love. And... I believe, and I'm just declaring this over myself and over everyone that goes through this devotional thing with me, which I am glad that you are. Um, Jesus is restoring your innocence. And I want you, if I had to express a heart desire, to begin to declare that over yourself. My innocence is being restored. My childlikeness is being restored. I know it sounds stupid sometimes to say things out of my mouth that my heart doesn't believe, but here's the deal. You say it enough with your mouth and your heart will believe it. And sometimes with truth, we have to begin to actually declare what's true in order for my heart to apprehend it. And so sometimes it just needs to come out of my mouth. Power of life and death are in the tongue. So when you see the little self-dialogue going on, you know, like how many people call themselves an idiot, stupid, a mess up, this or that, you know, whatever, whatever. We all have a little conversation we do in our head. When you hear that one, captivate that thought and declare something true over it. Declare the truth of what's in the word. In fact, one of the things that I did that was very powerful, and I'm ending with this, is I wrote out like these 21 like little paragraph declarations over my son when we first adopted him. And I was declaring everything that God was going to do. My wife was too. She's better at it than I am. 
But I, that was my declaration, you know, that I'm, I'm declaring something that's true that I'm not seeing. You don't have to see it to declare it. When you declare things in the spirit, you frame up a reality that you can walk into. Frame up your reality with your mouth by what you declare. There isn't a word that drops in this kingdom of heaven in the universe. When you speak, angels start being moved to do things. So we have to really get a hold of who we are, who we carry, and what happens with our mouth when we make a declaration. So I declare that innocence is being restored over us, that we are getting back our childlikeness in Jesus' name. And I declare that over everyone that's joining me with this today. So declare today that you're a child in your heart and declare today that your shame is totally absolved and your heart and your innocence is being restored. Write things down and pray them until your heart believes them. Blessings.